I got to tell you, I love when the Ulmer family's here because I get such a kick watching Yvonne sing with her children. You can tell how filled she is with love. It's a great thing. Hey, I get theme music. That's awesome. Sounded like a game show host, didn't it? That was, that was pretty cool. So I forgot an announcement today. How many of you remember Skip Anderson? Skip was one of the best guys I ever met when I came to this church. Um, tell these great stories about walking around in Panama without shoes and, and he had these great stories. Uh, as we know, Skip has gone to join the Lord. And uh, we are we're excited for him because he is just basking in God's glory, but it's also a sad time. They're going to have this funeral service or memorial service today, 3 o'clock, at the uh, chapel of Macy and Son, 135 Northeast Evans in McMinnville, 3 o'clock today. So uh, if, you've, if you want to just support uh, Skip and his family, that, that service is today. When I was uh, 8 years old, my dad went back to jail. And uh, my two of my sisters that were still living at home and I were shipped off to Niles, Michigan, where I had an uncle and aunt, uh, and they were going to take care of us while my dad was in jail. And uh, I told you about my Uncle Bob before. Uncle Bob was a gunner, and I think a radio man, on a B-17 during World War II. And that, on his ninth mission, he was shot down over the North Sea, and he was taken as a prisoner of war and spent two, two and a half years at Stalag 17 in Krems, Austria. Bob was, uh, Bob was a Jew. His last name was Goldman. He was enlisted, so he didn't get the treatment of officers, and he was very, very badly treated. Eleanor, my Aunt Eleanor, I didn't know. I hadn't heard much about her, and uh, I learned that she's kind of a saint, literally. Eleanor was a Christian, and she was very, very, very into the church. So as we moved in, my two sisters and I, we got indoctrinated into that church routine. And, and I'm not kidding. I think we went to church every day except Saturday. And that's when the pastor came over for dinner. <laughs> it was a lot of church. And she was a member of the Assembly of God. And so they have a unique way of doing things. And I remember my sisters and I in this transition between this trauma we were experiencing in our own family, being separated and being put with Aunt Eleanor and Uncle Bob. I remember calling her a Jesus freak because she was just flat weird. See, you can see on the screen Eleanor with the puppy. She looks like a church lady, isn't she? You see... To us, she seemed so out of touch with reality. She was, she was cheerful in one of those disturbing kind of ways. <laughs> you know, when, when you shouldn't be happy, you got that, look at that smile she has. She always had that smile. And she was kind of Pollyanna-ish about life. Everything was just okay. And my experience was everything was not okay. My dad's in jail, I've been separated, my mom's wasting away in a nursing home. Things are not okay. She just was uncomfortable. Kind of, a, kind of a culture clash for me when I was eight years old. I don't have a lot of memories of those times. You know, I was separated from my family a lot, and I, my memory's not so good about this stuff. But I remember a couple things. I remember once I had my elbows on the table at dinner. 
I love what you're doing because that's exactly what's about to happen. She's shaking her head. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. And Uncle Bob was wielding a tablespoon. And it turned out he was a lot faster than he looked. Swack! Caught me right in the elbow. And I learned not to put my elbows on the table. I will tell you to this day, if you eat with me, I do, just in rebellion. <laughs> my Uncle Bob taught me how to ride a bike by putting me on a bike and pushing me down a hill over and over and over until I did it without crashing. My Uncle Bob, given his experience as a POW, suffered from post-traumatic stress. We didn't call it that back then. It was battle fatigue or whatever you want to call it. And he was a little bit of a wild man. And he needed adrenaline. And he used to ride motorcycles. So he took me out once. I was, the ne I was the nephew. I was eight. And he says, hold on to this strap on the seat, which I did. And then he went off. Woo! And I fell off the bike. And I'm trying to get back. He nearly killed me. I don't think he cared. He had other children, and it was all going to work out. <laughs> and I remember my, my cousin Kirk, who was my eldest cousin there, 17 years old. <laughs> His birthday's around Valentine's Day. And remember Aunt Eleanor there, sweet lady? She baked him the nicest pink heart cake you'd ever seen for a 17-year-old man on his 17th birthday. <laughs> Embarrassed him in front of his friends. He was very angry about that. I remember that. And I remember going to church a lot. Decades later, um, I wanted to see these people again. You know, I, again, I didn't have a lot of memories. I knew they took care of me. That's a good thing. So Lisa and I were in Chicago, and it's a couple-hour drive to Niles. So we said, let's go see Uncle Bob and Aunt Eleanor. So we drive out there, and uh, Uncle Bob had since found the Lord. It's an amazing story in itself, because he was a Jew who was actually an atheist who got invited to church by his wife for 50 years or something before he said, finally, yes, Eleanor, just stop, I'll go. And there was an altar call, and this man had bullets in him from being shot down, never walked without crutches. He got up in the altar call, threw the crutches down, walked up, accepted the Lord, and became the church custodian for the rest of his life. Amazing story. Eleanor wins. Eleanor was still the saintly, pious, sweet, Pollyannish Jesus freak I had come to know all those years ago. But I say Jesus freak in a different vein today. See, while it took years, I finally understand my Aunt Eleanor. And I'm going to try to convince you today that you need to be Jesus freaks too, just like her. You don't have to get the dog, but you can, you can be a Jesus freak. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to uh, Romans chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, please raise your hand. We're going to take notes and give them to Pastor Brett when he gets back so he can call you. Let me know when you're there. Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love Romans 12. Romans 12 is the, the chapter in Scripture where Paul tells us how to really live our lives. Romans 12 is the chapter that says, God has something better for you than probably what you're going through, 
and this is how you do it. Let me unpack those first two verses a little bit. Paul is telling us four distinct things. First, he's telling us as Christians, we are to recognize the incredible sacrifice of Jesus. Think about what he went through for a moment so that we could be shown mercy and grace. I always tell people that Jesus wants to spend eternity with you so badly, he died for you. Just so we could be together. And yes, my friends, you get me for eternity. Oh, yay, thank you. One person, there's 143 of you here, and one person said yay. What's important we understand about this, though, is that, that he came seeking us. Look at all the other religions, please. Every other religion, you have to be smart enough, good enough, work hard enough, be enlightened enough, have enough money, whatever it is, to go find God. And then you really never know if you did enough, right? We're like runaway children, and God came searching for us. We didn't want him to find us, <laughs> to be honest, right? But he searched and searched and searched, and he's still looking for those who have not come home yet. What an amazing thing. The second thing Paul is telling us is that we should live sacrificially in relationship to God. Jesus did suffer in ways that we truly cannot comprehend. God searching for us instead of us having to do something for him is counterintuitive to everything we know in life. Paul is telling us that if Jesus did all that for us, the least we can do, the least we can do, is become a living sacrifice for God. And that's our true worship. Well, what is a living sacrifice? It means don't be selfish. You know, you know what sin is, right? Selfishness. I... I fall short of the glory of God every day, probably every hour. I'm really good at it. I saw this line on Facebook that was funny. It said, uh, sometimes I wrestle with my demons, other times we just snuggle. <laughs> Paul's telling us not to be selfish. Paul is telling us that we should be putting all our focus on Jesus, we should be having him as the center of our gravity in our lives, no matter the cost to us personally, professionally, socially, or otherwise. That sounds easy, right, until I mention that last part. So how do we rid ourselves of, of selfishness? Paul says we need to stop conforming to the pattern of this world. You know, do you know who made the pattern of this world? Thank you. Thank you. Betsy Bailey, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for being here. It's nice seeing you again. Um, this is Satan's world and his pattern of this world is selfishness you know just do it you know, everything's about you and Paul says don't conform to that don't be that person God has something better for you instead kind of be transformed do the things God thinks are important not the things that, that the world's telling you is important do you, do you remember uh, Solomon he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and he, he did everything, didn't he? he? He did horses, and he had mansions, and he built cities, and, and he had lots of girlfriends. A thousand of them. A thousand of them. I tell my wife I can barely put up with one wife. He had a thousand of them. It's great. He did all that stuff. And at the end of the day, at the end of the book, he says, and it was all meaningless. 
He says, verily, verily, in the beginning. And at the end, he says, the only thing that matters is the fear of the Lord. The only thing that matters is I should have done what God told me to. Because all this stuff that I tried to fill my life with was empty. It didn't mean anything. So be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit in your life in such a way that you have a renewed way of looking at things. Do you know that we all have a prism we look through? Are you awake? Do we have a prism we look through? Some of us have a really negative prism, don't we? You know, we call them guys that have glass half empty. Have you ever met people who have no water in the glass? They're like Eeyore. Oh, well, the sun is out. We all have a prism, and everything that happens to us comes through that prism, and we judge it based upon this stuff. And what Paul is saying is you can judge it through the worldly ways. Is your job more important than that other guy's job? Are you making the right money? Are you driving the right car? Or you can judge it through a renewed sense of looking at what God thinks is important. And what does God think is important? Love God, love each other. Pretty simple, right? Lastly, Paul urges us to do this so that we can know what God's will is for us, right? This is funny. How many of you have ever asked the question, what does God want from me? What is God's will in my life? What am I supposed to be doing? Well, I always kind of chuckle at that because it's really clear in the scripture what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love each other. Right? You're supposed to use your gifts and have Jesus be the center of your focus so you can do what he says. And you will be so fulfilled if you just do those things. But what we try to do is fill it with worldly stuff. Like, I was a guy that believed in titles. The bigger the title, the happier I was, at least the happier I thought I was. And it wasn't even about the money. It was just a title. I liked being called master of all I surveyed. And it was empty because I always needed a bigger title. I always needed something more to try to fulfill my sense of insecurity. I needed to be somebody. And the lie that Satan was telling me was, you're not somebody, you need this new thing. And God said, Tom, you are somebody. You're my child, isn't that enough? Do you see how God juxtaposes the worldly system of, of un, just being dissatisfied with the satisfaction of just seeing God's world his way through the renewing of your mind? So Paul is really saying, God's got something better for you than the way you're living called being a Romans 12 Christian. And I believe my Aunt Eleanor was a Romans 12 Christian. She was a woman who wanted to honor and glorify God by sacrificing herself for him by living a life dedicated and focused on him. Worldly things, title, position, power, money, respect, authority, gossip, jealousy, anger, all of that stuff had no meaning in her life. She wanted to live her life in a way that emulated what God had done for her and how God loved her. She meditated on his word day and night. I swear she did. She prayed constantly. And remember, she's living with a severely affected post-traumatic stress POW who was whipped. He had whip marks on his back from where the Germans abused him. She lived with a rebellious older son. She had another son who was about 10 or 12 at the time she, was, she had to take care of. And she had three children in her house that weren't her own that were unchurched, thinking she's a Jesus freak. And yet she kept smiling. 
1972, that seemed very, very, very bizarre to me. She seemed naive. But we were too young at that time and too unchurched to understand that she's the one that had it right. She got it right. She was a Romans 12 Jesus freak. So this idea of what does God want for me is one of the most important questions that we can ask in our lives. What really, what is my role? Why did God make me? Have you ever had one of those depressed moments where you're thinking, why did God even make me? What, what is my purpose? I don't really add anything to the mix here. I hope you've not, but there's plenty of us that have. And I'm going to go through this for you. The verses are on the screen. First, we're told to love God with all our heart and our soul and with our mind and to love each other as we love ourselves. And this is important because Jesus says you do that and everything else in the Bible will fall into place. Let me explain why. Paul says, without love, I can do all this great stuff, but I'm just a resounding gong. I love that one because it's the only time the word gong is used in Scripture. Without love, without love, does it even matter? Does family matter? Does going to church matter? If God didn't love you and he, you just came here because you had to worship him, would it matter? Would it be a relationship? Not at all. All the things in the scripture that you're supposed to do, if you love one another, you'll do. You know why? Because you won't transgress against each other. You won't transgress against God because you love him. You'll do what Jesus says because you love him. You'll, you'll do all that stuff. That, and Jesus says all the laws and the prophets fall underneath these two commands. Love God, love each other, and you'll be fine. Now think about your sin life for a second. Isn't it when we're not loving somebody that we create the worst problems for ourselves? See, for me, I'll just be candid. When I'm angry, Scripture says, don't sin in your anger. So they knew I was going to get angry. Sometimes I get really frustrated. Part of my post-traumatic stress from issues. And when I get triggered, whoo, it's exciting in my house. Last night, I had one of those moments. And, and good thing I was in my office because things were flying. It was great. And... Uh, but I sinned in my anger. I wasn't loving. I didn't love myself. I didn't love anyone else. And I wasn't even thinking about God. Because I was in my sin moment. And Jesus says, if you don't do that, if you can love, you won't get in those moments. You won't be there. You'll just treat everyone the way I wanted you to. And you'll treat me the way I want you to. What a great thing, huh? Your second part of what you're supposed to do for your purpose in life, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, Jesus said in John 14. It's pretty easy, right? Do you know the commands of Jesus? Okay, everyone, who's got Google when they go home? Everyone got Google? Go and Google commands of Jesus. It's a fun exercise. It'll give you something to work on. There's a lot of them. But if we love him, we'll do it. This is how I likened it today in Sunday school. My wife and I are married, and when I got this wedding ring, every time I did something wrong, it got tighter. And I, I, wouldn't, I would know, I, I would do something, and go, whoa, hey, whoa, I feel it. And I don't do things with her to compromise in the relationship because I'm forced to. I don't do things for her in the relationship because I have to. 
I do things in the relationship that compromise in areas because I want to, because I love her. And I want to honor her, and I want our relationship to work out, and I like sleeping at home. And so when Jesus says, you'll do, if you love me, you'll do what I command, it's not love me or else. It's if you love me, it's like this relationship. You'll do things for each other. Even in friendships, we compromise with each other, right, to make it work, right? So Jesus is saying, in my relationship with you, you'll do what I, what I want you to do. And you won't feel compelled. You won't feel like it's an order. You won't feel like it's a, a, you know, God telling you what to do. You will feel that you want to do this because it's such a great relationship. And then Jesus says, I give you a new one, a new one, new command. Love as I've loved you. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Well, how did Jesus love? He came to serve not be served. He washed his disciples' feet, which in first century Judea was the nastiest thing you could do. He went to the cross for us. He was second. He thought we were worth more than he was. So how are we supposed to have a relationship? If you love me, you'll do what I command. I give you a new command, and that's to love each other the way I love you. Sacrificially. Be second. Be second. Consider others better than yourselves. When you're looking out for your own interests, look out for other people's interests. See, in our selfishness and our pride, that's a hard one. We think we do it, but we're not always good at it. And then he tells us the the standard thing that we know we're supposed to do. Go make disciples. Go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we forget the next part. There's a next part that says, and teach them to do all I've commanded which, if I were to paraphrase that, teach them to be in relationship with me. It's awesome. That's your mission. That's it. That's your purpose. So as Christians, as we're, as we're the church, do we follow these directives, do you think? Do we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul? Do we love each other and love others the way we want to love Do we obey Jesus' commands? Here's what I found interesting in the research. There's about 50 commands we all kind of (laughs) know. There are actually 648 commands in the New Testament that Jesus is telling us to kind of follow. 648 things he tells us to do. Now, I would tell you, church, most of us do all of them. We don't even know it. But wouldn't it be great if we knew what they were? Do you love sacrificially? Do you put others first? Are you really going out to the unsaved? Are you really going out into our community and saying, I've got this incredible relationship and you must have it? The answer depends on each of you individually. Some, you know, everyone's doing their own thing, right? We got our own walks. God's given us different gifts to do different things. It's cool. But let me tell you about the church with a big C. 83% of Americans say that they are Christians. 68% of that believe in heaven. Only 57% believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. On any given Sunday, Pew Research says about 24% of Christians go to church, but Baylor University said that that number is actually 17%. Of those attending church, 52% say religion is very important to them. For the remaining 48%, religion is somewhat important or not important at all. 
in mainline churches, which are like Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian mainline churches, only 14% believe Christianity is the exclusive means to eternal life. You only get to the Father through the Son. Only 14% believe that, while 83% believe you can get to heaven lots of different ways through lots of different religions. 22% of churchgoers think the Bible is fully inspired, God's word. 28% think it's just a story written by men. These are Christians. And only 4% studies say, uh, only 4% actually tithe. So let me summarize this. Less than a quarter of those professing to be Christians attend church. Only half of them say religion is very important in their lives. Less than three quarters of those say that they are Christians, uh, that say they are Christians, actually believe fundamental pieces of Christianity. In other words, most of the people that say they're Christians aren't Christians. Today in, in class, great comment. We were talking about some of these issues, and, and the comment was made, people want to make their own God. They want to define who God is for them because it's a better fit. I agree with that. I, I got a great idea for God that would fit me really good. Um, there's stuff in the Bible that I'm like, oh, really? It's hard. Jesus said following him would be hard, right? Well, we're finding out the church with a big C, the vast majority aren't following Jesus. I don't see those sold-out Romans 12 Jesus freaks. So I ask you, Calvary, does it matter? Do you really think it matters? Does it matter that most Christians out there, the nominals that don't go to the church, even people sitting in the pews just don't care? They don't really believe God's word is actually his word. They don't really believe what they're being taught, and they're certainly not going to follow Jesus because they're not going to obey his commands, so they don't love him. Heck, I don't even think they believe in them. So there's a horse I want to pummel right now. If you turn in your scriptures to uh, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, please. Matthew 7, 21, 23. I say I want to pummel this horse because I brought this up time and time and time again. I find this to be the scariest piece of scripture I know. This is Jesus speaking and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this is judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many works in your name? And then I will declare to him, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The I never knew you part is the key. See, didn't I just get done saying that we have a relationship with Jesus. He came to find us even when we didn't want to be found. And we have this relationship, and it's awesome. And we do things for Jesus because we're in relationship. Not because we're forced to, but because we want to. And then I read you some statistics about people that say they're Christians that don't really want to be in relationship with Jesus. And when they get in front of them, they're going to say, oh yeah, I've always been a believer. And Jesus is going to say, we never had a relationship. Does, do you know any people like that? I want to grab those people by the lapels and shake them as hard as I can and let them know what they're missing. Because in their lives, they're having a substitute, not the best. In their lives, they want a God that fits their lifestyle or their mindset or whatever it is. And instead of getting the best that God has to give them, they're settling for a substitute. I don't want that for them. 
So the, another key part of that verse is the people that get to go to heaven are the ones that do the Father's will. So let's take a look at what that looks like. Jesus said a lot about what the Father's will was, right? He said, do not judge or you'll be judged. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Turn the other cheek when insulted. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. If you love your family more than me, you have no part of me. Jesus is the first in your life over your earthly possessions and your relationships and everything. He's first. Repent from your sins, he tells us. Honor God's laws. Be reconciled. Don't have anything between you. Be reconciled. Take the plank from your eye before you take the sawdust out of the other guy's eye. Don't divorce, he tells us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't be ashamed of the name Jesus. Or he will be ashamed of your name in front of the Father. Fear God, not men. Pick up your cross and deny yourself. Be a servant. Do not worry about your needs or what's going to happen tomorrow. He'll take care of you. Do not exalt yourself, but be humble. Lose your life to save it. Be last to be first. Give to Caesars what is, to, what is Caesars and give to God what is God's. Do not be anxious for anything. If you are without sin, go ahead and cast that first stone. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of stuff up against you because of the name Jesus. Don't be angry with your brother. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Thinking sinful thoughts is just as bad as committing the sin. And, again, don't be ashamed of my name. We all know those, right? We've been in church a little bit. We've all heard that stuff before. But the question is, are you living it? Do you think about that when you're out there, not in here? See, you want to be a Jesus freak? Do that stuff. It'll mess with people's heads. It's good. According to Jesus, there's more, obviously. He told Paul to do it in four little sentences in Romans. Jesus said, here's all this stuff. Paul, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you know God's will, do it. I, I don't find this stuff very difficult, to be honest with you. I think that Scripture kind of lays it out and says, you want to be happy. How many of you want to be happy? You ever hear about that joy that God says you can have in your life? Peace beyond understanding. You want that? Do this stuff. You're not going to find it in your lives out there, in your job, in, your, in anything else. You're going to find it in, in God. And that's what he's trying to tell us. So let's look at Paul. Here's a guy... Think about Paul for a second. Here's a guy who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Talk about having the life. In first century Judea, he had title, position, power, money, anything he wanted. He was that guy that could walk around in his little robes and people would go, oh, it's, a good, it's Paul. He had it made. He was a Christian killer. He was there when Stephen was stoned, rooting him on. And then he has this incredible experience with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in one fell swoop, <laughs> he goes from having this privileged life to being an outcast, an outlaw, a heretic, a blasphemer. Everybody he was in, in, in this relationship with here turned on him. And you know, you know the story. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. All sorts of horrible things happened to Paul. And when I read Paul, I go, how did you do it? 
Could I get beaten with the stick 30, 40 times, whatever it is? Could I, get, could I have all that stuff happen to me and still say, in all circumstances, I'm happy? You know, he, he got beat up that one time and he's in the jail and we're singing hymns. Whoa, really? Could I do that? How does he do it? Well, here's how he does it. God was his strength when he was weak. God's grace was sufficient for Paul. Paul gladly endured hardship and suffering for the name of Jesus. He risked himself to spread the word. Paul was a Jew to the Jews, a Roman to the Romans, and a Greek to the Greek, which meant he met people where they were. He didn't make them come to him because he was this high and powerful Pharisee who you had to bow down in front of in order to have religion. He went to the person and said, hey, I want to meet you where you are. I want a relationship. Paul loved people as Jesus had loved him. Paul stayed focused on the mission, and he was content in all circumstances. And that's a decision. Contentment is a decision. Paul considered all that he lost in, world, in his world, the Pharisee world, he considered it all gain for Christ. Paul considered others better than himself. Do you remember Paul saying, of all the sinners, I am the worst? Paul encouraged others. Every letter he writes, he's encouraging people. This guy's getting beaten to death, and he's encouraging others. I hope you're great. I'm praying for you. Thank you, sir. May I have another? He was selfless so he could pour himself into other people. He fought against Satan and temptation. He prayed and communed with God. He boldly told the truth regardless of what society thought of him, how society responded to him, or how society treated him. He told the truth. Paul was not ashamed of the name Jesus and spoke it boldly, and he paid a price for it. And he did it in synagogues, Jewish synagogues, and, and he did it in pagan cities. That's bold. Paul called sin, sin. Sin is sin. And he said, look, confess and repent. It's okay. God's grace is sufficient. But go to him and tell him, God, your ways are right and my ways are wrong. And Paul lost everything for eternity. Why was he so content? Why did he have joy? Why did he have peace beyond understanding? Because he understood who his God is. He understood the relationship and he understood that this life is not all there is, baby. There's more. So you've been listening to me yammer away and um, enumerating all these things, which is like the first rule of public speaking not to do. But I want to know how your life stacks up. Do you offer yourself as a living sacrifice? Are you willing to tell God, I'll do whatever you want me to, no matter the cost? That's a scary prayer. Be careful what you wish for. Are you willing to tell him, I'll do anything you want. I don't care the cost. How much do you conform to the pattern of this world? Does your life as a Christian look anything different than in the life of an unbeliever? Would anybody know you're a Christian just if they saw you on the street? Lisa Snyder keeps saying like this. That's because she keeps like, taking that cross and walking down commercial. <laughs> They're calling the police on you next time. Have you allowed yourself to be transformed by the Holy Spirit? And I say aloud. See, you can, you, can, you can say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and then allow him to do nothing in your life. Do you know that you're a new creation in Christ? You're a new person? Do you see the world through God's eyes or are you still seeing them through your fleshy eyes? 
Do you understand that God's will for you is to make him first, foremost, center of gravity? Everything else, your family, your job, your ego, your needs, your wants, your desires, selfishness, your dreams, everything second. That's hard. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, if we are intellectually honest with ourselves, that's hard. I'm a work in progress. There are places where I am the utmost Jesus freak. And there are places where I work every day to give more to Jesus and to be less and to sacrifice myself and try to do my disciplines. And like I said, pretty much every hour I fail. Which is why I'm glad that God's grace is sufficient, right? Scripture says have a sober judgment of yourself. So I really want to challenge you today. Have a sober judgment. Where are you? Where are you in your walk? And I want to tell you this. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk. What matters is you're in the walk and you're moving forward. I tell people that uh, I'm like a shark. You know, if sharks stop swimming, they drown. Keep going forward, baby, like a shark. Keep working. Keep working. Do you believe what Scripture says? Do you believe Jesus and when he commands you to do stuff, you should do it? Do you find the Bible intolerant and sometimes just, I just can't even read it? Are you one of those Christians that will stand up for your faith in church, but when you get outside, you don't want to mention the name Jesus because it might offend somebody? Are you making disciples? Are you talking to your family members? Are you talking to your neighbors? Are you doing any of that stuff? Or is it just one of those things where I do nice things for people and I hope they figure out I'm a Christian? Do you want to be a Jesus freak? Do you care? Does it matter? Do you want to be one of the 83% of the people that go to call themselves Christian and you can be the ones that come to church but it just really doesn't have any impact on your life whatsoever? I mean, it's your choice. You have free will. You can do what you want. Paul tells us all things are permissible, but not all things are good. You can choose what you want. As for my house, we'll follow the Lord. As for me, I'm going to be a Jesus freak. I'm going to be that guy that is nutty like my Aunt Eleanor. I got this email from a buddy of mine recently. He and I do ministry together. And he said, hey, Jesus freak, as the like, opening line, instead of dear Tom. And I got to admit, in my flesh, I kind of recoiled at that. Jesus freak. I'm turning into one of those people. I'm thinking about some nerdy guy like wearing a sweater vest, no offense to Bob Flood, um, <laughs> that, you know, doesn't fit in, just kind of awkward. And then I'm thinking about David, and I'm thinking, David was a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't kind of nerdy and geeky. And Paul certainly was a Jesus freak, and he wasn't, didn't, he seemed pretty bold and not kind of weird. I want to be a Jesus freak. I know I've got that, the, the personality of a linebacker more than an evangelist, but I want to be a Jesus freak. I want to be a guy that is never ashamed of the name and goes out there, and my life does look different. And I am shining a light that people go, What's wrong with that guy? I want to be like my Eleanor when people look at me and go, Man, that's really weird, creepy smile he's got. I want to be that guy because I want to tell them about the love of Jesus in my life and what a difference he's made. But you got to risk everything. Money, comfort, position, title, reputation, health, friends. you got to risk everything. 
few weeks ago, I was officiating a wedding. <laughs> I've known this girl for, since she was three years old. And I don't know how she grew up to be this old, but she did. And uh, I did the typical things you do during a wedding, right? Told them that God had put them together. What a great thing. And I told them that, that uh, they love because God loved them first. And I explained to them that you're to love each other in the, in the marriage like Jesus loves the church sacrificially. I explained that the man was the spiritual leader of the house and the woman was equal in all things to nurture and support him and all that. And at the end, right before they kissed, I said, you know, what God has put together, let no one put us under. Checked every box. <laughs> it was a great wedding. And then later, Lisa and I finally got done doing the official stuff. We were going to sit down at this table, and there were like three or four people at this table, a couple chairs. And we sat down, and within about 45 seconds, that table was empty. And I looked around, and I smiled because I realized no one knew how to talk to the God guy. No one knew how to make small talk with the God guy. And I laughed. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm a Jesus freak. I just scared everyone off. This is so awesome. I know as I talk today about, uh, about being a Jesus freak, my Uncle Bob and my Aunt Eleanor are kind of smiling and laughing at me because I'm embracing a title that I once used as a pejorative term against my Aunt Eleanor. And what I really want to convince you about today is this. I want you to wear it too. But I'll be honest with you, my last thought is I have some concerns. If you've been in church 10 years, you've heard like 500 sermons. If you've been in church 50 years, you have had about 2,500 sermons. If you're Gary, you've probably preached 3,000 sermons. <laughs> do you remember any of them? Do you remember the details? Some of you do. Some were really powerful. Do you remember what Brett's main points were on June 22nd, eight weeks ago Sunday? I don't. I kind of remember the topic, but... See, our church life sometimes is our church life, and our outside life is sometimes our outside life. And we don't take the stuff that we do in here, and we don't take it out there. And that's not being a Jesus freak. That's just being a freak. <laughs> we need to do a better job as the church, as a family, of saying, you know what? I am fed in this church. When Brett preaches, wow, it fills me. And I love the worship. I love the singing. I love telling God how much I can love him. And I love the fellowship, how we get together, and we are a family. I love it. But don't have a lobotomy when you walk out those doors. Bring it with you. Apply it to your lives. God has so much for you. God has so much for you. I really want you to commit with me today that anywhere you are in your walk, no matter where it is, you will be a Jesus freak. You will be that person who is willing to say that Lord Jesus Christ is the center of gravity in all I do, period, no matter the cost. Keep your eyes firmly planted on him. Because if you do, you can be just like my nutty Aunt Eleanor. Why don't you join me in prayer? Father, oh, help us. Help us be the people you created us to be. Lord, I know that... Uh, you want us so badly to follow you in all things, to, to do the things you tell us to do, to, to be those Jesus freaks, Lord. But we can't do that in our own power. So, Lord, we call on the Holy Spirit. I call on the Holy Spirit to come to this church and land on us so hard that we have no choice but to speak your name, to be those people that are not afraid to leave this building and say, I love Jesus Christ. 
He is my Lord and Savior. I have this incredible relationship, and I want to give it to others. Lord, burden our hearts for that. Make it so that we can't keep it inside ourselves. Lord, your people, your church, your faithful servants, we're here to serve. In Christ's name, amen.